and welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm Michelle Harner, Professor of Law and the Director of the Business Law Program at the University of Maryland, Francis King Carey School of Law. I am also serving as the Robert M. Zinman ABI Resident Scholar for the Fall 2015 semester. Alex Partners released a report last month showing that 55% of retail bankruptcies since the 2005 amendments to the U.S. Bankruptcy Code have ultimately ended in liquidation rather than reorganization. The data and the insights offered by this report are incredibly important given, among other things, the steady stream of retail Chapter 11 filings that we have seen in recent times. Indeed, in just the past 12 months, retailers such as Radio Shack, Wet Seal, Cachet, Deb Shops, City Sports, and American Apparel have filed. Talking with us today from Alex Partners are the two co-authors of that report. Holly Etlin, Managing Director in Alex's Partners Turnaround and Management Practice, and Director James Hogarth. Welcome to you both. I so appreciate the time you're giving us today because I think this is, as I said, an incredibly important study and report for not only practitioners and professionals working in the bankruptcy space to read and consider, but also policymakers who may be considering whether or not Chapter 11 currently is serving the purposes for distressed companies, including retailers. So, Holly, I'd like to start with you and just ask you what motivated the study underlying the report. Well, Michelle, we are about 10 years now past the law change, and we wanted to take a look to see whether, in reality, what we thought was happening was really happening. You know, practitioners, when we all get together in the retail space, we talk about how in effect, there's no chance to reorganize a retailer in bankruptcy post this law change because of the time limitations that have been imposed. And so we decided to go out and look at the actual filings and see if they supported what we all believed had been happening. Terrific. And so when you were thinking about trying to dig into that question, what's really going on? We know what we all think anecdotally is happening, but Let's look at this in a more quantitative fashion. James, how did you go about setting the parameters and identifying the population for this particular study? The uh, the, the goal really was to throw the net uh, pretty wide and to look at a range of uh, a range of retailers skewed towards the larger end of the spectrum. So from a timing perspective, we started looking at cases from the beginning of 2006 all the way through to the end of June this year. And from a size perspective, we looked at all retail bankruptcies with over 50 million in liabilities. The, uh, the only cases where we chose not to look were grocery and restaurant cases, which I think have slightly different dynamics to traditional retailers. And then if a company filed a second time during our study period, we'd go back and look at it even if it was less than 50 million in liabilities. Okay, so you went ahead and lowered the standards for those that have filed a subsequent case uh, since they had emerged from their first Chapter 11 case. Uh, absolutely, because we wanted to look through the, you know, the full life cycle. And if a company went back in a second time, we wanted to make sure we looked at that again. 
Terrific. And James, before we talk about the demographic breakdown of the companies in your study, could you perhaps just elaborate a little bit on why you pulled out the grocery store uh, Chapter 11s, which we know we have been seeing, what you, and what makes those slightly different than the retailers you focused on? Uh, you know, the dynamics affecting the grocery industry are very different, as is the asset base that they're reorganizing typically. Um, grocers, when they file for bankruptcy, have a very different inventory position relative to traditional retailers. And a lot of this, when you boil it down and, uh, and look at the cases, relates to the treatment of inventory, the value of that inventory in a restructuring and how you manage that. So, so it seemed appropriate to take those out. I, I think that's a very astute insight. I, I think people often lump all the retailers into a single category, but you're correct. The inventory that a grocer may have on hand and may be trying to preserve as far as value is very different and needs, I would expect, very different treatment as you're both doing pre-planning and, and actual bankruptcy work for them. So then let's go ahead and talk, James, about the demographics of the companies within your studies, just so listeners have some sense of how the debtors broke out as far as size, assets and liabilities, revenues, jurisdiction, just some basic concepts so we understand the picture we're looking at. Got it. The, um, you know, the breakdown is really the breakdown of, of all retail bankruptcies in the U.S. over the last decade. So when you start to drill down and think about what that means from a sector perspective, you know, the single largest subsector within the retail markets when it's come to restructurings over the last decade has, has certainly been apparel. So about a third of the cases we looked at were apparel retailers. Behind apparel, you'll probably followed next by home and garden, jewelry, and, uh, and broadline retailers. From a size perspective, we had a cutoff at 50 million, so we didn't look at anything beneath that. And the, the data set certainly included some of the very large retail bankruptcies. But I think the characteristic of retail filings over the, over the last decade has you know, been typically mid-market. Um, about a third of the cases in our study had 100 million or less in liabilities. And the average retailer that we looked at probably filed with, uh, with about three to 400 million in liabilities. I think that's very helpful because often the coverage given to retailers, I think, lumps them in with the mega cases we also see in the news so frequently. But it's important to rem remember so many of these companies are smaller. They're middle market, um, which I think presents different challenges than perhaps some of the larger Chapter 11 filings outside of the retail sector face. So, Holly, having given that background as to why you did the study, the basic parameters, and, and who is within the study, what would you consider some of your key findings? Well, Michelle, the, I think the, probably the key finding is, is it supported the view that we were seeing on the ground actually practicing in this area, which was that the vast majority of retailers who filed did not find themselves with enough time to effectuate a sale or a reorganization, and therefore they liquidated. And that those who did manage to survive mainly survived because two-thirds of the remainder were sold. 
it is very difficult, given the timelines and the change in the law, to actually do a true reorganization in the way in which we did it in 2005 and prior for a retailer, where you file, you figure out which stores you're going to close, you go through a store closure process, you improve your operations, you operate through typically a Christmas season as a proof of concept for the restructuring of the company, and then you engage with your creditors to do a reorganization plan. Uh, post the law, there isn't any time to do that effectively, and so you find a much higher uh, group of retailers ending up in liquidation. They have no time, and those that do survive are generally sold. I, I think there are several interesting kernels in, in those particular findings, Holly, and, and one thing that struck me as you were talking about the way retail cases operated prior to 2005 was the opportunity to fix the business and verify the utility of the new model before actually putting a restructuring plan together to bring the company out. And I, I find that interesting because even if you're trying to work within the new timelines and do a lot of pre-bankruptcy planning, which I'm hoping we'll get to in this conversation as to how retailers can work within the current bankruptcy structure. But even if you're able to do pre-bankruptcy planning, you're not able to test that model before you build your restructuring plan on it. Uh, yeah, I think the inability to get through one or two holiday seasons, which I recall from practice days, was so important to retailers. Uh, that's got to be very challenging now that that's no longer a viable option. So, Holly, when you're, you're thinking about uh, the key findings that you just mentioned, one other question I, I just wanted to pose. We hear so much right now in the bankruptcy dialogue about the melting ice cube case. Are, are retailers that are within your study, so taking out the, the grocers who have a very different inventory and, and asset base in most cases, are, are these filings um, – within that grouping of ice cube cases that need to move through Chapter 11 quickly, or is the timeline, the compressed timeline that you referenced, really just statutorily driven because of the 2005 amendments? In my personal opinion, it's solely the statute. It's really just so unfortunate, Michelle. It's you know, When you take that 210-day limit without landlord consent, and you then subtract from it the period of time that it takes to actually liquidate the stores if the stores had to liquidate, which every dip lender imposes. You end up with 120 days by which your dip lender requires you to either have closed a sale of substantially all the assets or confirmed a plan of reorganization. Now, that's on the 120th day of the case. And in many situations, you cannot really commence serious negotiations with your landlords until it's actually until you've actually filed. You know, many public companies find themselves in this catch-22 situation where they can't um, find it very difficult to commence these negotiations pre-bankruptcy, and therefore run up against a very very hard deadline by which they have to get all of this done. Um, in particular, in the Borders case, we started it with a full court press to get every one of the Borders landlords to extend that 210-day date so that we would have adequate time to really show potential buyers of the company 
that the management's plan to turn around the business really had legs. At the end of the day, despite having 20 people working full-time from our real estate consulting firm that we had hired to do that, plus the entire real estate team inside the company, uh, we only got 85% of the landlords, and included in the 15% that would not consent were some of the most profitable stores in the chain. Taking those stores out made the business plan unviable. Therefore, we were then stuck within, despite a really huge effort, stuck within that 120-day timeline. As you, you described that situation in Borders, you, you know, it brings to mind the old term, unintended consequences. You know, I, I, I suspect, although I, I don't know for certain, that people, when the 2005 amendments were passed, didn't anticipate the two things you just identified, both the constriction on financing that would result, so that it wasn't a 210 day limit, but really 120 days that would be imposed under the dip financing. And second, the holdup value that you were giving particular landlords that could really crater an entire reorganization. So, James, let me turn then to you, understanding these high-level findings from the study. One of the findings that struck me when I was reading the summary was you found that 49 retailers emerged. Can you describe what type of emergence that entailed? Are we talking about traditional plans here, or are we talking about a Section 363 cell type exit from Chapter 11 for those 49 retailers? Certainly. Um, you know, by far and away, the, uh, the majority, probably about two-thirds, of what we called emergences took the form of 363 sales. And only about a third of those were traditional reorganizations. And I think the reason for that is, is very much the timeline that Holly was just talking to. With such a compressed timeline for retail bankruptcies, a 363 sale is a very effective way of, uh, of consummating a plan within that time frame. So what you really saw was was one of two things. You saw reorganizations where a pre-negotiated plan had been put in place in advance of the filings, or you saw a 363 sale. If there wasn't a plan in place prior to the filing, the outcome was a, was a sale or a liquidation. In the sale context, James, can you describe, or Holly, I would welcome your input here as well, how are these retail debtors addressing the landlord lease negoci negotiation issue for the purchaser? Or is that just something that's being done ex post after the sale is consummated? Well, you have as many negotiations with the landlords as you can effectuate. Um, there always are, when a retailer is looking at reorganizing, there always are a clear group of stores you wish to close, a clear group of stores you wish to keep, and then there are the bubble stores. And the bubble stores are really the ones where if you can get a lease concession or really develop a, a plan of mitigation to turn around the operations of that store, you might keep under the right circumstances. And so given the compressed time frame, that's really where you focus your efforts with the landlords is all around the bubble stores. And I would expect that if a landlord knows 
a sale is going to happen, and it's going to happen by a date certain, you're able to come to a conclusion of those negotiations perhaps quicker than you could when you're trying to do a traditional plan of reorganization, and they know because of the statute they have the hold of value. It's, it's an interesting dynamic shift almost. Yes. Look, the, the the large landlords, the the mall landlords, the well-known ones, are all very sophisticated about this process. And and frankly, my experience is they bend over backwards to try to see whether or not they support management team the management team's view about the turnaround of the business, and also work with the company around the stores that the company wishes to keep and wishes to dispose of and then the ones in the middle. The problem you have is if you're looking at a retailer where you are not uh, covered by a majority of these more sophisticated multi-store landlords and instead you have hundreds of one and two-store landlords who are less sophisticated, less quick to come to conclusion, and it just becomes then a law of numbers. There just there's only so many days. There are only so many people you can talk to, and you've got to do the best you can. As we continue to talk, I'm empathizing with you more and more in trying to help these distressed retailers. It, it just seems um, like the challenges are, are uh, very substantial here. And so, Holly, let me stay with you for one moment. So you mentioned earlier the challenges now presented by the dip financing agreement for retailers on the timing end and how the very short timeline you have, this practically 120 days, has facilitated more 363 sales. And then James backed that up with the dissection of the 49 retailers who emerged in your study. When you're seeing these Section 363 sales, are you finding that the debtor and possession financing facilities extended in those cases either have required the sale process through the milestones and benchmarks they've set, or even where perhaps it's a loan-to-own scenario, the dip lender becomes the purchaser in the Section 363 sale. We've seen a little bit of both, but when it comes to a traditional lender as opposed to an investor being the dip lender, uh, the milestones are absolute. And it's for a very simple reason. You get to the no lender wants to get to a place on the 210th day where the retailer is not going to survive. Now they have to look at trying to liquidate the assets and there's no time left with regard to keeping the leases from becoming uh, rejections or administrative claims. And so therefore then they don't have the time necessary to liquidate the inventory in the stores, which is their principal collateral. So every dip lender that I've worked with since the 2005 amendment has absolutely required a sale, consummation of a sale, or confirmation of a plan of reorganization by approximately the 120th day. I've actually had some very detailed negotiations with a, a dip lender around whether it was the 120th day or the 130th day and what it really took to actually liquidate the assets. And we were able to buy a week or two additional because the um, we had a couple of major liquidation firms back us up on the time frame that they thought it would take to actually work through all the inventory. So we were able to buy a little more time there. But that's that's all you get. The fact that even getting an additional week or two of time can be critical in these cases, I think, emphasizes you know, how tight the timeline is and how every day is so important as you're trying to help the debtors under the current code structure. And I, and I guess, James, following on that theme and thinking about what 
you used to be able to help debtors do when they had more time, right? Really write the business and do an evaluation of the stores and determine uh, the profitable stores from those that might need to be closed or perhaps uh, realigned. When you're now able to reorganize a retailer in Chapter 11, are you able to get store closings done? Um, maybe another way to think about it is of those uh, 49 retailers who emerged through a plan, did they close stores, and, and how effective was that operational change? Sure, a couple of couple of pieces in there. I, mean, I guess to, to answer the specific question on how many of these cases involved store closures, the answer would be that the vast majority did. Um, certainly, in maybe one in five instances, you'd see closures of above 50% of the store base. And in at least half of the cases, you're looking at substantial closures of, uh, of 25% or more stores. So, so, you know, retailers are certainly still using the bankruptcy process to exit store leases. Um, and, and it's a, you know, a critical piece of the operational side of, of turning around a, a distressed retailer. I think there are very few retailers that file without a mixed portfolio of stores. They've got some that are st still profitable and they've got a number that are underwater. Um, outside the bankruptcy context, it can be very expensive to exit loss-making stores. Inside bankruptcy, um, those barriers are massively reduced and, and you still see retailers taking advantage of that. Um, I, I think the nuance perhaps is that because the timeline is compressed, although you can still uh, effectuate store closures in bankruptcy, you really need to um, have done the analysis, the thinking, the research, the negotiation with landlords in advance of a filing so that you know exactly what you want to do from day one. Well, and that brings us to the other aspects of a typical reorganization that then a retailer, because of this compressed time frame, doesn't have the opportunity to take advantage of. You don't have the opportunity to review, except on a very cursory basis or maybe on a very materiality-focused basis, your executory contracts and other kinds of things that you would normally be able to use the bankruptcy process to um, help you rationalize and negotiate. You know, some of these negotiations, you sit down with a counterparty and you want to speak with them about, you know, modifying their contract. And of course, your ultimate uh, leverage is that the company could choose to reject that contract if they wish to do so. But you hope not to do do that. Again, this compressed time frame doesn't allow a retailer to do that. In addition, to have a successful sale, the management team has to be able to show a business plan for the turnaround of the business. And so if there are other elements of the retail operation which need to be turned around, management needs to have sufficiently tried those elements, maybe through the opening of a group of proof of concept stores that have the new concept in them, show some track record in those, or have other elements of their business plan that a potential buyer of the retailer can have some comfort that those uh, kinds of assumptions are achievable. Again, in the past, you had the opportunity within bankruptcy to do that. 
Now, a big hunk of all of that has to happen prior to commencing any kind of a case. And that raises the interesting question, Holly. When you have one of these bubble leases that you were mentioning earlier, bubble stores, so there's not a definitive answer immediately whether the store should remain open or be closed. And you're under this very tight tight time frame to make the decision, and you can only do the cursory review. How does the decision fall? Is it more likely those stores end up being closed on a conservative approach to the reorganization, or, or do you take the benefit of the doubt and keep them open? And the reason I ask is, you know, to be fair, right, the landlords felt strongly about the 2005 amendments going through because they felt as though retail debtors were stringing them along in their Chapter 11 cases, and once they found out their their lease was going to be rejected, they didn't have time to, to mitigate the damages and get another anchor tenant or just a regular tenant into that space so that they didn't have a dark space in their malls or their strip plaza. So they articulated, I, I think, reasonable business concerns when they were asking for the amendments in, in 2005. But as we talk, I think there's likely been a negative impact on the landlords um, as well because of this kind of rash decision-making process that almost has to happen under the current code. Um, you know, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, um, you know, or if, you know, it's, it's a more neutral impact as to the landlords, but it seems to me that there could be cases where their lease may have been assumed had there been more time to negotiate and, and discuss the issue. Oh, I firmly believe that. Um when you're looking at a set of um, underperforming negative cash flow stores and you want to have the opportunity to turn them around, but you need some form of concession around the operating costs of that store so that you're not continuing to lose money there, one of the key things you look at is an interim lease concession or a longer-term lease concession from the landlord. If you don't have time to negotiate those, unfortunately, that does pressure you to put that store on the bonfire. That store goes into liquidation column because you just can't convince a buyer that you should be allowed to keep more than a very few stores that are not cash flow positive or certainly not cash flow positive um, higher than a certain uh, minimum hurdle rate. Right. Well, so it's again, you know, the law of, it's the law of unintended consequences again, right? because Absolutely. I think uh, the, most landlords would have preferred, in most cases, to have the retailer continue in their location and not end up with a claim around which they will get substantially less than 100 cents on the dollar for their claim. Um, but yet, uh, the result of this is, is actually, to some degree, the opposite. And thinking about your points and unintended consequences with respect to the challenge in testing the viability of a business plan under the current timeline, I noted in your your study, and James actually mentioned this when he was talking about the parameters, that 13 of the cases are Chapter 22s or, you know, perhaps a, a, a Chapter 18, where there's been the original Chapter 11 filing by the retailer, they emerge, but then they have to file for bankruptcy again. And I wonder if you could talk maybe a little bit of those cases and whether, in, at least in your opinion, some of it might be linked to the inability to really verify the 
business model before coming out of Chapter 11 in the first instance. Absolutely the case, Michelle. Uh, the vast majority of those um, Chapter 22s resulted from a very quick first filing that had not sufficient numbers of store closures or operational changes associated with it and was primarily focused on uh, fixing the balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And I think the, you know, the bottom line is that retail bankruptcies are tough the first time round, um, but they're brutal the second time round. Of the of the thirteen cases that we looked at that went in a second time, only eleven came out. They both came out as three six three sales rather than reorganizations. So this is something you want to get right the uh, the first time round. Uh-huh. And if you try and diagnose w- what they didn't get right by looking at the plans um, during the uh, during the second filing, looking at what they intended to do at the outset of that filing before they were forced into a liquidation, I think to Holly's point, the you know the answer is to to go deeper, to embrace those changes that they contemplated the first time round, but they but they didn't make for whatever reason. Uh-huh. And, and I know many. Uh, commentators and even I think practitioners, you know, believe a 363 sale can very much be like a reorganization, right? It can save stores, it can save jobs, it can save incomes for communities related to the continued operation of those brick and mortar stores. But is it always the case when a more traditional retailer goes in, the 363 sale accomplishes that? Or are we seeing some sales where, you know, they're Taking the the intellectual property, the trade names, or um, other aspects of the company that wouldn't necessarily be the preservation of total value, we often align with a reorganization. I believe we classified those as liquidations. If the company was okay. pulled off piecemeal, that was classified as liquidation. Yeah, the um, if the intellectual property or the leases were sold, we certainly counted that as a liquidation. If a portion of the store base was sold, however, we counted that as a sale. So, so that's the distinction that we made. But, but within that, within what we call a, a 363 sale, you, you've got a full spectrum. You've got companies where substantially all of the stores were sold and they continued to operate. And you've got cases where a very small portion of the store base was sold and the majority liquidated. Okay. That, that's very helpful and, and, you know, underscores that even in the 363 context, the magnitude or extent of the reorganization varies, but then you are also seeing the, the straight liquidations, which would go to that 55% uh, finding that we actually started with. So we've talked a lot about the study and how many of the challenges link back to the statutory amendments in 2005. And Holly, I know you were a witness before the American Bankruptcy Institute's commission to study the reform of Chapter 11, which issued its final report and recommendations in December of 2014. And one of the things the commission talks about in the report is the challenges faced by retailers with respect to the 210-day requirement for assuming or rejecting leases. And the commission actually recommends an extension of that time period to one year. And then they also tried to address some of the challenges faced with quick sales or milestones and benchmarks placed into 
financing agreements that limit the time a debtor has to really catch its breath with the automatic stay and assess its reorganization options. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on either the proposed statutory changes by the commission or what types of statutory changes are needed to help facilitate more successful outcomes when we're talking about retail Chapter 11 debtors? Well, Michelle, I think the um, probably the most impactful change would be extending that 210-day period to a year. Um, when I think about the position that the dip lenders have taken, frankly, it's a reasonable position. When you consider the fact that if the company is not going to emerge and needs to be liquidated, you can't have a situation in which a lender finds itself with a group of springing administrative claims if they're not done with winding down the company by a certain date. So the real key there, I honestly believe that the dip lenders are not being unfair in this perspective and that when you're you're facing a very, very hard deadline around this issue where if you don't assume or reject leases by a certain date, they become administrative claims, it is, is a big issue. So extending that deadline out, giving a retailer a little bit more breathing space, the lenders are still going to back up from that, a liquidation period. But if you start at 365 days and you back up 90 days, you've got a lot longer period then for a retailer to really accomplish what they want to do inside of bankruptcy. The landlords still have their outside edge protection that they really had bargained for in the 2005 amendment. Um, but I think you're giving retailers who find themselves in bankruptcy without having to prepare adequately uh, a better chance of being able to use the process in a more normal way and survive. And I suppose, um, even though I expect many would like more than uh, one year, you could time the filing of the Chapter 11 case if you had a retailer that was thoughtful enough to do some pre-bankruptcy planning to give yourself at least one holiday season to test the changes that you're proposing in the, in the Chapter 11. Um, I expect there would be exceptions to that, but in most cases you might be able to at least see how the holiday seasons or the back-to-school season goes to, to test the viability. Uh, do you think that's up there? Yeah, most, uh, most retailers that find themselves in bankruptcy without having had a lot of time to plan are, are are doing so because of a liquidity event, either because their existing ABL lender has placed in a very large reserve, which has reduced their availability under their borrowing base, or because and or because they have seen a very quick um, loss of credit among their vendor base, and so you know in both of those the retailer believed it had a longer runway to get to a restructuring and instead found itself with a dramatically shorter runway. And those are the retailers that would have potentially had a chance it to reorganize in bankruptcy had they been given a little bit longer um, time inside to get the breathing room that is typically contemplated by the code for there to actually be a reorganization. Okay. Well, we're coming towards the end of our time, but I would like to get two more questions in. And I, I think 
the first one is really important, Holly, for practitioners and distressed retailers in the current environment. We can talk about the changes we would like to see to the code, but those may take time. So how do you help a retailer under the existing code in the current environment retailers are operating in achieve the best result it can in a Chapter 11 process? Planning is key. You've really got to have alternative scenarios that you are pursuing well in advance of a potential liquidity event so that the company, while it may be pursuing a refinancing or an equity infusion or something else, is also really taking a hard look at a deeper restructuring in which it would use this as an opportunity to close stores. So planning is absolutely key. Um, getting your proof of concept stores, a, an adequate number of them, up and operating so that if you find yourself needing to sell the business quickly, management can actually point to the group of stores that are operating the way that they envision the chain operating on a go-forward basis, and they can show some track record in those stores. So often you don't have the money or the liquidity to fix the entire store base, but you can certainly take a representative sample and do those. And that really then goes to your ability to operationally turn the company around. Well, I think that's terrific advice, although I, I expect it's hard to implement because, as we know, so many distressed companies like to keep their, ha their head in the sand uh, until it's too late to really affect uh, a successful outcome. So hopefully, knowing the challenges they face, retailers will be more willing and more open to restructuring discussions earlier in their process rather than later. So then one last question, um, Holly. Some retailers released their earnings earlier this week, and many are predicting a very tough holiday season for retailers here at the end of 2015. If that turns out to be the case, what can we expect as far as retailers and bankruptcy in 2016? I think we can expect a number of additional restructurings and sales in 2016. Um, particularly as um, management teams who have been struggling with their turnaround concepts um, have now reached the end of their liquidity. But so many retailers are very dependent on a positive outcome in the Christmas season. And if they're not able to achieve their business plan projections, they'll certainly need to be looking at moving up their scenarios around a restructuring. Okay. Well, we will wait and see, but that sounds like a pretty sage prediction uh, based on everything we've discussed. So, Holly and James, I want to thank you so much for your time again. Thank you very much. And I want to thank our listeners. And again, I've been talking with Holly Etlin, Managing Director in Alex Partners Turnaround and Restructuring Practice, and Director James Hogarth. This is Michelle Harner saying thank you, and I hope you join us for another ABI podcast in the future.